0: Praise God! I um, leaned over to Bishop and I leaned over to Pastor Williams and I told them, "I said, I just feel feel a confidence on me to to teach, and I don't. I usually don't like to open up saying that I'm going to teach because in our apostolic churches we kind of like just settle in and we think nothing's going to happen when we hear that, and I don't expect that from this group of people because I. I I know Brother Dustin teaches, and I know that he is used uh, profoundly in that. And so I know that you are used to that, and so I'm not expecting you to sit in on me. I'm just, if somebody's here tonight as a guest and you came to a revival waiting to hear an evangelist, God has moved on me in a different way. So if you're disappointed, I don't apologize. Amen. I just want to obey the presence of God, and I want to obey what he's wanting to do tonight. There is a, a parable in the gospels where jesus tells of these individuals who received what he calls talents one received 5 another received 3 and the final one received 1 and if you dig a little and you study a little bit you'll find out what a talent is it's it's you know i know we hear the word talent and we think it's an ability and i was raised told if you've if god gives you the ability to play the guitar and you don't play it and your fingers are gonna fall off. That's kind of, it's not. It's not talking about an actual talent. It's talking about finances. This this master came and gave uh, one talent was, if I'm not mistaken, 18 months worth of income. And so even the least in that scenario got at least a year and a half's worth of income. And something uh, is interesting because when the master comes back and he evaluates their efforts, he finds that the one with five did a great job of multiplying. The one with two did a wonderful job, or rather three did a wonderful job of multiplying. But the guy with one came forward and said, I knew that out were a hard man, sowing where you do not reap. And that's an interesting uh, thing to say to someone who just gave you a year and a half worth of income. I knew that you were a hard man. And I I do believe that there is a an underlying message there. I believe the main message is that God has placed us on this earth to to do what Adam and Eve was tasked to do in the garden, which is work and keep. This is not this is not for the lazy. It's we're not we're not loved more for our efforts, but we are asked to put forth effort by the master. But the meta message that's lying underneath is if you're going to be any good at this multiplication and work thing, I think that it's, it's necessary that we know how great this God is that we're working for. This man's multiplication hung in the balances of his revelation of who he was working for. And his revelation was off. He said, I knew that thou were a hard man. He obviously didn't know who he was working for, and that affected his labor and his produce. And so it is of intrinsic value that we have a firm grasp and a powerful revelation, and I just keep feeling, I felt on Sunday God wanted you to get a revelation of how great he is, and I felt felt that some of you got it, but I don't feel that all of you got that. Because you didn't do what I expected someone with a revelation of how great God is to do on Sunday night. I expected you to come in here just completely enthralled with him, worshiping him before the music even went forth because of his amazing mercy. And I just, I saw us settle in for yet another church service. And so I am going to, yet again, under the unction of the spirit, I'm going to slow Sunday down and I'm going to settle in again on how great this God is that we're living for, that we're working for. God just won't let me get away from this. And it's not that we're stubborn and not listening. I think that just there are times when teaching will get the point across, and I just feel the anointing of teaching on me. We are not working on this world for a hard man, He has given us more than we'll ever deserve. The fact that we have a talent, and I think what happens in that parable is one talent is gracious, but it don't seem that amazing in the context of our brethren who seems to have more than us. It's easy to lose sight of the mercy of the master when you're surrounded by people that looks like they got more than me. And so I I want to address that. So if you will, will you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7? I'm going to go to verse 19. Verse 19 and i'm i'm going to ask some of you to read for me cuz i didn't i'm just trying to obey the holy ghost didn't have time to get with media to hand them scriptures and there's some scriptures i want you to hear and i wish that you could see it up on the screen but that's that's on me i didn't get with media but hebrews chapter 7 verse 19 is where we're going to go this evening i'm very thankful for all of you who came out tonight I'm, i honor you i know that you've worked hard today I know that I'm in a different context. I got to study the Bible today, and I am here as a full-time minister. But you all are full-time laborers, and I don't want to take or make light of that. You have worked hard today, and it was a, a sacrifice for you to be here tonight. And I want you to know that I honor and appreciate you for being here this evening. So thank you so much for being in the house of God. I honor you. Hebrews 7, 19 says, For the law made nothing perfect, but... On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You see, they had to have backup priests in the Old Testament. Because guess what? The priests die. Jesus, however, can hold this office forever. He remains our priest For all of eternity, because we have seen through the gospels given to us, he cannot die. So verse 25 says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, talking about the ones in the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this, hear this, once for all, he offered up himself. Jesus only had to do it one time, folks. And it's finished once and it's done. He doesn't have to do it yearly like they had to in the old covenant. He did it one time. He resurrected. So he's, he's a better priest. He can't die. So we don't need a new priest. He remains priest forever. He is the priest. He holds that office permanently. And he don't have to offer an animal sacrifice every single day. He did that one time himself because he's better than a lamb, better than a ram, better than a dove. He did it once for all. I want to talk to us tonight about a paradigm shift. There, We have to shift in our walk with God tonight. There is, there is a, a tremendous unction in the spirit. I feel it on me for you to make the leap to that next place in your walk with God. God has sent me here this week with a mandate to draw you a little bit deeper in your relationship. And I'm going to highlight the word relationship We oftentimes have our relationship with him through our actions, through our deeds. We're actually holding hands with our our performance, but not the Father. And we need to shift that paradigm tonight. So would you right now, would you just lift up your hands? I want you to keep your Bibles because I want you to keep them open to Hebrews, but I want you to lift up your hands right now. And I want you to just bombard heaven with this request. Father, draw me closer to you. Pray that however you have to pray it, but I want that to be the prayer this evening. Father, draw me closer to you. Father, you have drawn me near through the revelation of who you are and how amazing you are. And God, that love has provoked in me a desire to get as close to you as I can. But God, with that revelation, I do stand also in fear, trembling, that I never want to abuse this relationship at all. So I stand in a unique place in between great love and great terror. Father, I pray that somebody tonight... I pray that many get a revelation. So I, in the Holy Ghost, I, Father, ask that you would cast down every stronghold this evening that would keep your people's minds from getting to the place of great revelation of how amazing you truly are. Lord, I... I ask that you would allow me this evening to teach the way you would have taught when you were on the side of the mountain. I pray that I would be able tonight through the help of your spirit to teach the way that Paul would teach to the churches. I pray, almighty, that you would tune me into heaven this evening and that your people would leave here edified and encouraged, but God, I pray that they would be equipped most of all. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Did you say amen? Amen. You can be seated. A paradigm simply is this. It's a pattern. It is a framework. An example of a paradigm is gravity, okay? We all know what gravity is. Gravity sets the framework that when something goes up, you can finish that sentence more than likely, it must come down. That is the paradigm, that is the framework of gravity. It depends uh, on how much or how little gravity there is, though. A scientist can work within the paradigm of gravity by weighing weighing an object. I weigh around 192 pounds, and within the paradigm of gravity, I weigh that much, but if I were on Mars, the paradigm changes. Here on this earth, I am, I am in the framework of the gravitational pull, and you can put me on a scale, and you will see that here on this planet, I weigh 192 approximately pounds. But if you put me within the framework of Mars, I weigh 75 pounds. My atmosphere has changed, so my paradigm has shifted. Gravity is different on Mars than it is here on this earth. Nothing has changed in me as far as weight is concerned. I'm just dwelling within the reality of the Mars paradigm. You understand? So let me just give, I want to I establish this idea of paradigm. Another example of a paradigm would be Ptolemy's geocentric model of the universe. Ptolemy believed that the earth was at the center of the universe. This belief was his paradigm. And it became the widespread and belief system of everybody of his day and age. Because he's brilliant, he knows more than we do, so the earth must be at the center of the universe and everything rotates around the earth is his paradigm. However, a paradigm shift occurs when one paradigm theory is challenged and ultimately replaced with another paradigm. For example, Ptolemy's paradigm shifted when Copernicus had a theory which stated that the sun was actually at the center of the universe. This was called the heliocentric model and it laid the foundation for astronomy. And the reason why this is so important because without this paradigm shift, if we remain under the false idea of Ptolemy's paradigm that the earth is at the center of the universe, Here is what lays in the balance. You will never leave this earth. You will will never explore space if you reside under the false paradigm that the earth is at the center of the galaxy. It had to give way to Copernicus' theory that the sun is actually at the center and everything rotates around the sun. When the paradigm shifted to this new model, or I should say old model that was all already established before anybody figured it out, now space travel is a possibility. You cannot explore if you reside under a false paradigm. In 1515, Nicholas Copernicus proposed that the earth was a planet like Venus or Saturn and all planets circle the sun. However, afraid of criticism, He did not share or publish this theory that he had in 1515 until 1543, shortly before his death, because the church had adopted the theory. And he was afraid to be excommunicated from the Catholic church. And so he did not share his findings, even though he had proof, because he did not want to be excommunicated from the church. The theory gathered few followers, and for a time, some of those who did give credence to the idea were faced with charges of heresy. You see the gravity, no pun intended, of a paradigm and its shifting. A paradigm, when some new paradigm comes against your old framework, there is always resistance. There is. This is why evangelism is so difficult. Because you're going to somebody who does not live the way you live or believe the way you believe, and when you introduce something that comes against their way of living and says that it is sinful, they are faced with a great dilemma, and we would be very wise to not force them because they're already wrestling with the idea you've proposed, but to present And step aside for a moment and allow them to receive and then come along and just be aware that it was not easy for you to shift your paradigm either. Paradigms are always initially rejected. This paradigm shift gave foundation for future astronomy and even space exploration. We do not get Apollo 11 without Copernicus standing up in the face of adversity and saying, I have found definitive truth that that old paradigm is actually incorrect. But that takes a tremendous amount of boldness to do. New understanding was gained and the former paradigm shifted to the new paradigm and understanding of astronomy was then able to progress forward with the adoption of this new paradigm And to give one final example, imagine that there's a seesaw up here, and you are born living on one side, either this side or this side of the seesaw. What God is trying to do with all of us is to pull us in the middle of the seesaw. This is where the Christian is to live. This is where the Bible is most comfortable, right here between two extremes, a crazy, idea that you are born with and another idea over here that opposes it. And you're going to live the rest of your life trying to find this, this beautiful harmonic balance between two extremes. Discipleship, true Christianity. And I tell people, you are in the sweet spot in discipleship when people don't know what to do with you anymore. That's the sweet spot. When people look at you and they see how loving and how gracious and how kind you are, they'll look at you and they'll, they'll immediately think, they're a little liberal, but then when they get to know you and you see that you have extreme disciplines and consecration, they're going to say, are they a little conservative, but they're so loving, they're so generous, but they're also so disciplined, so prayerful. I don't. Where, what side of the seesaw are you on? And you don't even have to respond. You just stay right in the middle. And this is the challenge because we are always born. We are born leaning to one side or the other. Some people are born over here. Anything can go. I can do whatever I want. No repercussions. People over here, myself, I'm, I'm this person. I'm born on the, the hard right side of the seesaw. This is where I was born. This is my upbringing. This is my tradition. This is actually my personality. I am hardcore. In order for God to love A.J. Holloway, I have to appease the God, and I have to offer myself an extreme sacrifice, and I have to fast many days. This is where I'm born. And the Bible nudges me towards the center. And so I am not teaching anything tonight that I have not had a shift of in my own life. I have been extremely uncomfortable in my walk with God and in my Bible time because I see that my performance is noble, but it is not what's pleasing Him. My obedience is what's pleasing Him. So we need to come center tonight. And to get to the center, your paradigm must shift. But I will forewarn you that it will be extremely uncomfortable before it does. And that is the point, and that is okay. Okay? So we are each born leaning to a side of the seesaw. That is our personal paradigm. And it could be, it could be for a multitude of reasons. It could be the way your parents raised you. It could be the 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 experience you had when you first came to God, and that's that's now your adopted paradigm, and you never move or mature past that because that was the moment you first believed, and this is where I'm going to set up camp, and I'm never going to move any further. And I'm afraid that many in the church today we have we have set up camp on Jesus name baptism, Holy Ghost and feeling one God, which is all true, but we've never moved any further. We we haven't grown. And I've been trying to tell people all this. The death, the burial, the resurrection is the most beautiful gospel on this planet. And I love preaching it. I love studying it. I love exegeting it. But here's the thing He did that in one week. He lived 33 years. And John tells us if you love Him, then you ought to walk in the manner in which He walked. What John is explicitly telling us is, if you really love this Savior, then you ought to live the way he lived. Well, guess what? You have no ability to live the way he lived unless you die the way he died, was buried the way he was buried, and resurrected the way he resurrected. You cannot live like Christ unless you've been crucified like Christ and filled with his spirit. That's why the death, the burial, the resurrection is so profound. But now that you have been born again, it is time to move on. It is time to, to find that center and begin to learn how to live in the manner in which He lived. That is the work. I believe that that is the work that if God left us with a talent, I believe the talent that he left us with was his salvation. He said, here is my salvation, and we cannot look at him and say, I knew that that was a hard man. He would look at us and say, how could you say I'm a hard man when I died for you? I was buried for you and resurrected for you. That was my mission. I did all that so you could live the way I live. Why didn't you multiply? Why didn't you become like me? Well, I, I knew that that was a hard man. That him being a hard man is our ultra conservative paradigm. And I'm not asking you to be liberal. I'm asking you to be balanced. I'm asking you to come centered. Our, if I have noticed a trend amongst conservative people and myself included, I've seen this trend in myself. So let's be fair. I've noticed a trend that. It is very, very, very hard for us to ever feel loved by God. Because he really only loves us because of our performance. That is a hard paradigm to shift. So let's let's go into some history here. To understand the full weight of what the author of Hebrews is saying, then we need to take a journey through the paradigm of life on the right side of the seesaw that they lived on. Okay, in their mind, we live on this right side. We're ultra conservative. We, we are favored by God. He chose us and no other nation. We're the, we're the firstborn son. We're the most liked. We live over here. We're the preeminent ones. This is who we are. We are favored. And he loves us because we have a temple. He loves us because we built the temple. He loves us because of the sacrifices. And this is their paradigm. So let's, let's look at a few things to just understand that. For them, sin, the word sin was not a religious word at all. We're the ones who made sin a religious word. In fact, did you know that the, the Latin word that sin comes from, the English word sin comes from a Latin word, it's an archery term. It means to miss, which is accurate because the Hebrew word, chata, means to miss. That's what that word means. There is no moral code attached to the word sin anywhere in the Bible. It just means to miss. And it, it, it's, there's a goal in mind. The goal was to be like him, be made in his image. That's the goal. And when we're not doing that, we miss. We therefore sin. A man who knoweth to do good and doeth it not... To him is sin. What is good? Christ. In fact, Jesus says it quite explicitly. Somebody calls him good, and he says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but the Father. So the idea is a man who knoweth to do good, therefore, means a man who knows to be like the Father and doesn't do it, to him is sin. You see? We have missed our ultimate calling. So what we are are doing, in in fact, let me read this in Proverbs 19 to prove this idea. Proverbs 19, 2 says, desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. That word miss is the same word for sin everywhere else in the Bible. It's kata. When the Bible talks about sin, it's saying that someone missed a goal. That goal, brothers and sisters, is to be like him. So if they missed this goal, then the Bible said that they had transgressed. Sin leads to transgression. The word in Hebrew for transgress is pesha. It it means to break a promise. And here's the, the unique thing, brother, about trespass is, did you know that you cannot trespass against a stranger? The only time trespass takes place, or transgression is is a KJV word, the only time you can transgress is if you're in covenant with someone. For example, if someone breaks into a Jewish home and steals from them, that person committed a crime, but they did not transgress. But if your neighbor breaks into your house and steals from you, they didn't commit a crime, they actually transgressed. They broke covenant because you should be able to trust your neighbor. So for us that are, we have said, I want to be in relationship with you. We made a covenant. And that covenant is, when we say I want to be in relationship with you, what we're saying is I want to be conformed into your image. And when we do no work to be conformed in his image, we're transgressing. We have missed the mark, and now we have broken the promise What we're saying is, I want to be married, but I really want the benefits. I'd I'd rather be a gold digger than a bride. I, I want your blessings, I just don't want to fulfill the covenant by fulfilling any duty. That's, in a nutshell, transgression. And when someone transgressed, it led to iniquity. Iniquity is the Hebrew word avon. It means twisted or distorted. Now you remember the original call is to be made in his image, okay? Now that we're not acting like him, we have sinned we've we have missed the mark, and by doing that we broke the covenant, so now we're in transgression. and so now that we're not in his image, guess what we are we're we're distorted. That's not his image. we're a warped image. This is why the Bible's so beautiful that the prophet Isaiah says in isaiah, I believe it's fifty three he says that he was bruised for our iniquities. Do you know what that's actually saying? He's gonna be beaten beyond recognition for our distorted image. He is not a hard man. I will, I will allow this fleshly body that I inhabit to be beaten beyond recognition because that's what you look like. And the only way to restore you back into the image of Christ is I need to match your image by being distorted as well. I will take the full weight of the sin you created upon myself to restore you back into image. I will hit the mark. I will be in his image. I will be the image of the invisible God and I will be distorted to restore your image. He is not a hard man. This was their world, sin, transgression, iniquity. So if they sinned, transgressed, and now they're in distortion, they had to get the relationship back right. This is where they get their tabernacle. The heart of the tabernacle is mentioned in Exodus 25. It says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. There it is. That's the God paradigm. That's the center of the seesaw. Build a tabernacle so that I can be with you. Do you see? Set up a system to where we can fix the distortion and I can dwell with you face to face. That's God's paradigm. So their commitment Their goal was now the Ten Commandments. To begin the process of looking like him, they would have five commands that dealt directly with their relationship with God. Have no other gods before me. Don't make for yourself an idol. Don't take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Why why do that? Because the father and mother is a direct image of God and the church of the groom and his bride. By honoring them, you're looking directly at the earthly representation of a man and woman in covenant of what Israel and God is now looking like. So honor them because they're testifying to you in their relationship. So five of the commandments were given to keep them in right standing with God. So if you're in right standing with him, then you are to be in right standing with everybody that's made in his image too. That's where the other five come in. The remaining five were directly related to their relationship with their neighbor. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't covet. If you got it right with the image of God, then you are to have it right with the image of God. Okay? This was the process given. If they broke one of the five that dealt with their relationship with God, a sin offering had to be made. If they broke the covenant and they got distorted with their relationship with each other, then a guilt offering was made. God provided a way to get it right when we're distorted. If you break this relationship, one of those five, and you get out of of covenant with me by transgression, and now you're warped in iniquity, we can fix this. And this is the way he did it he said, Bring a lamb. And put it before the altar. All of the sins will be transferred. By the way, they would lay hands on the lamb. And all the sins would be transferred. This is the concept of the laying on of hands in the new covenant, by the way. This is when they say lay hands on people, that it's not some super spiritual thing where we're laying hands and shaking on people. We're doing what the Old Testament priest did. We have now the authority as spirit-filled people made in the image of God. When we lay hands on somebody, we're saying, those sins can now go because I have the authority of the Father in me who as a priest. That's what we're doing. That all the sins of the, of the Israelites would transfer. All the distortion would be put upon a lamb that's about to be distorted. On behalf of Israel's distortion. It's not fair. The Lamb did nothing wrong. We did. But the Lamb gets all the penalty. I'll say it for I'm gonna say it a thousand times now. We do not serve a hard God. So they would. I'm not gonna go into every detail, but they would they would basically take this thing apart to where it was unrecognizable. They would then go to the laver of water. They would wash their hands. The laver of water was made out of mirrors from the Egyptians from, from Egypt, and they would look in that, and the priest would see the blood all over his face. He would see all of the stains from the sacrifice, and he would be able to wash his face in those mirrors, but then he would go, and he would have to take his shoes off. He would beat the dust off because he's going to the supernatural, and nothing from the natural realm is allowed into the supernatural realm where God is. So let's beat the dust off of our shoes. It was a reminiscent and a callback to Moses taking off his sandals before approaching the most holy flame. He would then go in, and there would be the table of showbread standing there. And the gracious God would say, hey, here's bread in my presence that I'm gonna give to you. But then on the other side was the golden candlestick. There's no sunlight in this realm. The sunlight's in the natural realm. In this realm, there was light given from the fire from the altar. But you're transitioning, you're going deeper. You go now to this altar of incense where they would take the guts of the lamb, they would take seashells from the, the Red Sea, and they would take sap from inside of a tree, put it on there. Notice all three things are deep within, it's the deep things, that would rise up to God, he would smell it, his glory would fall, and they would go into the most holy place where they would meet with God face to face, and they would have his Shekinah glory, from sunlight to altar light to God's light. That's where we're going. It's the third dimension. And they would stand before a mercy seat. This is their world, and this is how they corrected if they sinned and were in transgression and in iniquity this became their paradigm this was their paradigm this was to be done every time a law was broken could you imagine how exhausting that is Every single year, they had a special day called the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, where two offerings were made. The goat was sent out into the wilderness, and the lamb granted them access. And they had to do this year after year after year. Why? Because the goat and a lamb cannot remove sins permanently. Nothing in this natural world can do that. This was the great reset button where all the sins against the entire nation was rolled back for a year. Bull offering for the priest and his family, two goats, one for the wrath of God and the other to carry the sins of the nation. This was the paradigm of the Jewish people. However, this paradigm became their relationship. They were more in relationship with the work involved than the God that they got out of it. Their paradigm shifted to performance. It it tells us that their paradigm was so distorted that even when the Ark of the Covenant was taken under the tutelage of Eli and his two corrupt sons, Hophni and Phinehas, that they still continued this whole process. They were still offering lambs, and there's no presence involved. They're not even getting the presence of God, but they're doing good because at least we're performing our duties. They're in relationship with an altar, not the Father. This is is how difficult it is for us. This is what happens to us. We become so performance-based, and we are just like Israel. Ultra-conservative, denominal movements, I love them. I'm a part of it. And, and I have grievances with, with the ultra-liberal liberal and the ultra-conservative. I love conservatism. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I don't like what I feel. I feel that oftentimes we're in relationship with our, our conservative side. So much so that we, we're doing things and we think we're in relationship with the Father, but we're, we're doing it out of tradition and we're doing it out of duty and we're not even close to the Father. And this is the paradigm that must shift. And me saying those statements will make many with a paradigm very uncomfortable. And I am am very aware of that, and I want to be very sensitive to that because I was very uncomfortable when my paradigm shifted. But they were so in relationship with this whole pattern, this framework, this paradigm, that when God came and dwelled with them as Emmanuel, They were so in love with their side of the seesaw that they could not possibly even see the center. Jesus doing everything in his power to convince them God is here. And they're like, "Ah, we'll, we'll take our pattern. We're really comfortable with it now. We like our sacrifices. I you can't be God. All of this was preparation so that they could see God so that they wouldn't miss it when he showed up. This was the practice before the big stage play. This was what was taking place behind the scenes so that when the big show came to town, they would say, oh, he's what this is all about. This is why John said, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelled. Do you know what tabernacle means? It's miskan in Hebrew. It means dwelling place. The word dwell in Greek also means tabernacle. And guess what John says? And we beheld his glory. As of the only, the word begotten means unique. He's the only one who could do this. He's the unique one. He is the tabernacle amongst us. All of this framework was to point to the one who was gonna get us out of this world. But their paradigm was stuck in Israel is at the center of God's plan. Everything revolves around us. No, Israel, you are a, a player in the grand stage of things to show the one who is at the center of it all. Jesus was at the center of it all And if your paradigm don't shift You will still perform your customs Even in 2023 And you're still trying to get a red heifer So that you can perform your duties All the while God is with us This is the danger of not shifting your paradigm I, I always want to give honor to Israel and I'm very thankful for what was given to us through Israel But I can also say that Israel is deceived Because they are still over there trying to build a tabernacle and it was already built, not with human hands. Christ tore it down and rebuilt a better one in his body. But they're stuck. Israel is at the center of the universe. No, Israel, Jesus is. But your paradigm didn't shift. God with us was trying to shift their paradigm and call them back to the center when he institutes his prayer. Because remember, the whole point of the tabernacle was, build me a tabernacle so that I can dwell with you. That was the plan. That's the center. That's the paradigm. That is the ideal. That is God's will. That's what God wants more than anything. He wants to dwell with his people. This is why Jesus didn't buy a house in his earthly ministry. And this is why he didn't build or buy a grave. Because he knew, I'm not staying here, and I'm not going to stay buried. Why would I pay for a grave? Here's what I'll do, though. I will pay an ultimate price for where I'm going to live for eternity. I'll buy you. We see that he wants a tabernacle not made with hands. We see that this is why we as Christians, and we need to know how to defend this, we are anti-abortion because those are tabernacles not made by anyone but God. A little tabernacle that's going to house glory, that's going to grow up into the image of God and do Mighty exploits, if that's what God wills for them to do. But we cannot destroy little temples. The people who do that are Romans, pagans. But he is trying to bring Israel center. And his grace meets with Israel. And this is what he institutes in Matthew 6, 5. It says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your... Father knows what you need before you ask him. So then pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Don't make me the scapegoat is what that that phrase is saying. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This teaching comes after he discussed him fulfilling the law. He discusses the true heart of the law, which was love. He told them, you have heard not to commit adultery, but I have said not to look lustfully at a woman. I'm I'm here to show you the heart of those laws that I gave you. It was never for you to be in relationship with the law. The law was to train you to be in relationship with me. You see what happens here. We fall in love with our laws when the law was actually sent to us and our good things to make us fall in love with the Father. That's the paradigm, that's the point of the law. And for many it is a paradigm, and it's hard to hear that your fasting gains you no favor with God. God didn't immediately love you more because you fasted. He didn't love you more because of your commitment to not wear certain things. He didn't begin to love you more because the Bible would be a liar if that were true because he said, "While you were a sinner. And so, what our brains tell us in our paradigm we adopt or create, rather, is we create, well, if he loved me while I was a sinner, then he's gonna love me even more when I perform. And Paul meets with the church and they have this question. They said, So, should we go on sinning so that we can get more love? He says, No. You're missing the heart. The law is good. But the author of Hebrews said, it perfected nobody, though. Paul said this. He said, the the good thing about the law is it told me what not to do, but the problem with the law is the moment it told me not to do it, I wanted to do it even more. When I was told that I shouldn't do this, then I really want to do it. The law revealed in me my desire for sin. He said, so therefore it is good because it shows me what sin is, but it cannot perfect me because it can't keep me from sinning. So what can the love of a father? This is that terrifying and amazing grace I told you about. If you can receive and walk in the love of the Father, then you can walk in a place that will lead you to perfection. You can walk into a place that leads you to, the word perfection, by the way, means completion, not being perfect. It's leading you to a place where you're whole. But if you are more in love with the law, you're just always going to be frustrated. And, I'm, and Paul never said stop doing the law. The commandments still stand because the Bible says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So we have these debates going on as well. Should we stop doing the law? The law is no good, blah, 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 blah. There there are laws, there's 613 laws in the Bible. These 613 laws came from the 10 on how to do the 10. And it became a convoluted mess. About 211, if I'm not mistaken, you can't even do without a temple, by the way. You can't even perform 211 of the 613 laws unless you have a tabernacle. The 10 You can do. The 10 is leading you to be made in his image. He tells him, you have heard not to murder, but I have said not to be angry with a brother. Notice that he's pulling from the 10 right here. He says, you have heard not to commit adultery. I've said not to look. Lustfully. You have heard not to murder, but I've said not to be angry with a brother. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool is liable to the hell of fire. He tells them to leave their gift at the altar, and he tells them to go reconcile with your brother. He's telling us how to get it right with him, be made in his image, and love what's made in his image. These and many others, he explains, their motives were flawed. They were living a standard on their side of the seesaw, but their motive was wrong because they weren't with the one who lived in the center. You must love me because look at all I'm doing on this side of the seesaw. He says, it's, it's impressive, but I would really love it if you came to where I am right here in the middle. I would love it if you came and you just wrapped your arms around me. But even his disciples didn't quite grasp how much the paradigm would shift because they were in love with their tradition. Jesus would be the high priest that would offer the sacrifice for the people and go into the Holy of Holies. He was also the tabernacle that housed the altar, the labor of water, the light, the bread, the Holy of Holies, and the mercy seat. In him was the bread of life. In him was living water. In him was the light, of the, the life and the light of men. In him was the most holy place. In him was the mercy seat. And people get all, all confused on how can he be the father? How can he be the son and the spirit? I have a better question for you. How can he be the high priest, the tabernacle, and the lamb? How can he be the high priest that kills the lamb, the lamb that is killed by the priest, And the tabernacle where the priest killed the lamb. Because he's here to fulfill all scripture. That's his point. He says I have to be a son because you've all missed the point on how to be sons and daughters. So I have to come down there myself and play the role of a son to show you what it looks like to be a son. But to do that, it's a lot like when I get on my hands and knees and I'm showing my son Ezra what I'm expecting from him. I'm still the father, but I'm playing the role of him to show him what I need. That's what the father was doing. He says, you've forgotten what it's like to be sons and daughters because you're so in love with performance. So I'm going to come down here as a son myself and show you. That's why Jesus said that voice that you hear up there, that's for your benefit. That's not for my benefit. I'm allowing you to see this relationship between a father and son so that you'll know what it's like when you become sons and daughters that are born into the kingdom. That's the paradigm shift that Jesus is introducing. He's showing I am at the center of this thing. And if you adopt my paradigm, you'll leave this planet. You can finally have space travel where you participate in a rapture. If you will forsake that old pattern and adopt this new tabernacle, then you can be in relation. I can meet with you face to face. He would be the tabernacle that housed the altar. He would be the goat that carried our sins to the grave where you and I belonged. He was also the goat that satisfied the wrath of God, but he was the the Lamb that brought us to the Holy of Holies. He fulfilled all Scripture in Himself. He was the perfect Son of Man. He was the perfect Father. He was the High Priest. He was the Lamb. He was the scapegoat. He was the tabernacle. He was the laver of living water. He was the fire of the Holy Ghost. He's the living bread. He is the mercy seat. He is all of Scripture packed into one human for the perfect redemption of all of us distorted ones. It's far more beautiful when you dig into the text and you find out that he's far more complex than just a father, son, and a spirit. He is everything the scripture has been telling us about. And we see clearly Israel's not at the center of the universe, Jesus is. He did all of this so we didn't have to. He did all of the legal requirements and then said, It's finished. The author of Hebrews is trying to shift some very Jewish paradigms in his sermon when he makes a statement repeatedly. Brother Dustin, if you can grab for me Hebrews 7, 26. My brother, if you can grab Hebrews 9, 11. Do we have any other ministers here? I want a minister to read for me. Hebrews, Brother, brother Williams, if you can grab for me Hebrews 9, 24. Somebody really quickly grab for me Hebrews 10, 10. Stand up if you're, if you're grabbing it for me so I know who you are. Hebrews 10, 10, if that's you. You got it? Okay. My brother back here has got it. Brother, I want you to read for me Hebrews 10, 14. I'll read the rest. Brother Dustin, can you read for me Hebrews 7, 26, 27? Yes, Hebrews 7, 26. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. 27. Who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. How many times? Once for all. How many times? Once. One once? time. Once for all? Okay. Okay. Somebody, brother, read Hebrews 9 1. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation. What did it call him? High priest. And the tabernacle. Read verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all. How many times? How many? Once. Once? What's verse thirteen say? For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifers sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ? Hmm. If an animal was able to make you pure, how much more so will the blood, how much more so will the blood of Christ do it, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? How will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 9, 24. Someone go ahead and read it, brother. Hebrews 9, 24. That was you, I'm sorry. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. You see, you hear what he said? He has not entered into the copy, but into the true one, which is in heaven itself. All of this that was made that they adopted as their paradigm was an image of what was in heaven. It was the stage play. It was to be acted out so that we would see the real one when heaven came here. When his kingdom, the things which are in heaven, came to earth, we were to see it, to behold it, to feel the glory. Verse 25. Verse 26. For then must we often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice How many times? Often. It says once. 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 He says. It was not to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest does, but he was to appear once, once. Hebrews 10.10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How many times? Once for all. It seems that the author of Hebrews is really trying to push a, a point here. It would seem that he's really trying to tell us. Christ has redeemed us. And he entered one time. He went into the most holy place once. For who? For all. And we are being sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus. Verse 11. It can't. Huh. It, so the priests are still in their paradigm, he said. They're standing daily in their services. They're offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which cannot take away sins. But it feels sure good, don't it? If this this effort, its it's a lot like one of those those stair climbers in the gym. It's a lot of effort, but you're getting nowhere. (laughs) You're burning a lot of calories, but you're not going any higher. You are in one spot perpetually. And these priests were like, yeah, that whole Jesus thing sounds good, that whole once for all sounds good, but my performance makes me feel better because me doing and doing and doing makes it feel like I'm actually getting something done. And the author of Hebrews is like, you're getting something done, but you're not going anywhere. You're still at the center of your universe and you're not climbing any higher into heavenly places because you're going through the blood of goats and bulls and they can't take away sin. So guess what? If it can't take away sin, you still remain in sin. Verse 12. How many? One sacrifice. <laughs> This is my question for you. If Jesus is sitting in the, in the seat of authority in heaven right now, and you are his body, where are you sitting? You're sitting in a place of authority. You're the body of Christ. This is why Paul says he has made you to sit in heavenly places, not because of anything you've done. You didn't enter into the tabernacle once for all. He did. And by him doing that, he said, everyone who's a part of my body will be there too. And guess who didn't do anything in that process? Me or you? Right. Let me, let me, Jesus is the one who called it the new birth, right? How many of you did anything to be born? Did anybody in this room just say, hey, you know what, I think I'll be born today. Let me go have a meeting with mom and dad. Let me, let me provoke them to intimacy. I'll be conceived and I'll be born. You did nothing in the process of birth. The intimacy of the father and the mother and then the mother carrying you and the father providing for the one carrying was the one who did all the work. You just showed up by grace. But now that you're alive, the, the father and the mother nurtures you and carries you to maturity and then you participate in this kingdom and you begin the process of work. But your work never saves you. But God asks it of you. You see the paradigm that's shifting? My daughter and my son, both of them, We have certain things that we ask of them in the Holloway home. But when they do that, it doesn't make me love them anymore. I'm thankful that they obeyed the voice of their father and mother. And when I asked my son to, my son was helping me clean out... um, uh, we were I was cutting some lumber for my house and I had sawdust everywhere and I said, Hey buddy, can you help me clean? And he's sweeping and he goes to port in the trash bag and just pours it all back on the ground again, doesn't even, even come close to the bag this big and it's just it's everywhere. And I said, Good job, buddy. I love your effort. I just love that you you said, Okay, daddy, I'll I'll do what you ask. His performance was horrendous. But his obedience was absolutely beautiful to me. And guess what? if he would have poured it in the bag, I would have loved him the same as I did before it even touched the bag. And if he said, no, daddy, I'm not gonna do that, I would still love him because he's mine, but I will be displeased for his lack of obedience. My love never changed. I now know I need to work with him on obedience. There's no point in that process, though, where I kick him out of the house. This is what I was trying to tell you on Sunday that your salvation is not as weak as you think it is. That you're not I would I, would, I want to change your paradigm right now. You're not walking on a tightrope to where you're you're like this. Okay, if 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 I if I'm if I don't If I don't make it, if I don't do the the perfect thing, I'm falling to my death immediately, and I'm immediately backslid. And the only way to atone is I have to fast, and I have to kill myself, and I have to pray many, many, many hours to get back into his good graces. What you're doing is you're no different than the God of Molech who has to offer babies to appease the gods, but you're the baby offering yourself. Are you happy with me now? Are you happy with me now? You're walking a tightrope. What I want to do is I want to shift your paradigm. Instead of a tightrope, imagine a narrow corridor where it's secure with walls on both sides, but it's still narrow. You don't get to carry everything you used to carry into this corridor or this place with God. You're walking in a narrow place, but not one false step do you fall to your death. You are positioned between two secure walls and a foundation underneath you. This foundation that you and I are built on can hold us even when we mess up. Because at the foundation of salvation is the love of a father for his kids. It'll hold you when you blow it. It'll hold you when you mess up. And so do we go on sinning? No. When we fall, we say, oh, I'm so glad that I wasn't on a tightrope. And we pick ourselves up in the narrow corridor and we hold the walls and we say, okay, let's go back towards the Father. This salvation is surer than you think it is. That's the paradigm shift that we must adopt. Christ is at the middle of this thing and he wants us in deep relationship with him. To the one who has been beating yourself up relentlessly because you don't always line up, there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. When you're walking in this salvation, you're in a sure place. Who can pluck you from the hand of God? Brother Holloway, do you believe once saved, always saved? No. I believe that you have all the will in the world to say, you know what, I don't want the narrow corridor. I'm going to go back out here, and I'm going to go pick up my tightrope, and I'd rather walk that again because my balance and performance makes me feel better about myself because I get credit and not God. That's the backslidden person, and we got them sitting on every pew. The Bible calls them Pharisees. Hebrews 10, 14. How many? How long? Huh. Does that sound weak? That sounds like a strong salvation. When you preach this gospel to the lost, how strong are you presenting it? Do you tell them, this thing will save you to the uttermost This thing is going to sanctify you. This thing is a sure foundation. It's better than the government. It's better than our politics. It's better than Fox. It's better than CNN. It's better than the lottery. It'll sustain you. It'll hold you. When you fall, it'll pick you back up. When you're lost, it'll keep you focused in one direction. How strong are we preaching this salvation? When we preach this to people, we should be the ones that tell them. They say, you're still going to make some mistakes along this way that's why 1 John 1 says when you sin you have an advocate with the Father Christ Jesus the righteous that's what we have when I sin I'm not out here trying to sin but if I do because I'm not in full alignment yet and I haven't been perfected what I'm going to do is I'm going to look underneath my feet and say I'm so thankful I'm in a narrow corridor and not on a tightrope lead me to the walls and help me stand back up this thing is strong folks verse 15 Hebrews 10:15 15. verse 16 this is the that that law that they were they had a paradigm of and that was their their, their world their relationship god said I'm going to take it out of scrolls and I'm going to write it inside of you Because I'm going to be the priest that reads the law. When the priest living inside this tabernacle, when he goes, is there even a scroll in me? This is why I have convictions, and this is why people don't know what to do with me. Is he a little liberal because he's preaching about about this sure foundation and this strong God, and he's preaching, you know, it seems like he's getting a little out there. But then you talk to him, and you realize that I've also got some extreme convictions inside of me because when the high priest, when he would go into the temple, he'd pull a scroll out. He'd pull it out and begin reading it. If the high priest is living in me, I better have a scroll of commandments living inside there for him to pull out and read. And when he looks inside this inward temple, he better find some commands. And he's going to read and he's going to say, don't commit adultery. Have no other gods before me. Don't fall in love with your vehicles and your money more than me. Don't love other things more than me. Don't covet what your neighbor had, but in all things be content. He's going to be reading the inside of me to see if I have a scroll. I want a scroll for him to read. But when he reads the scroll, I also want to be balanced and say, you don't love me more because I have the scroll, do you? He's going to say, no, I love you because you're obedience, and I love you because you're my son. Verse 17. How, what, what? He's not going to remember my sins anymore? They're no longer before him? He gets rid of them completely? (laughs) What does verse 18 tell me? Whoa. (laughs) That's a paradigm shift. So, you mean to tell me that where these forgiveness of sins are, there is now no longer any need for the offering of sin? Whoa. What do I do with that, Brother Williams? Let me explain to you where this message came from. This is not something that I just study. This is something the Spirit directed me into because I lived in a paradigm my whole life. And I talked to, to Pastor Dustin about this today. And I had lived in this hardcore, God only loves me because of my performance paradigm. And God had to deliver me from myself. I never felt good enough. I never felt like God loved me enough. And when I made one little false step, I felt like God was angry with me and I felt backslid. And then I would go on extreme fast. I've been on 30-day fast. I've done all this to appease God. I've done all of those things until God... God started shifting my paradigm. I was 16 years old. I've been praying the tabernacle prayer. Do you know what the tabernacle prayer is? It's a pattern. It's it's this pattern where you come come into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. That's what you would do when you go into the tabernacle. Then I'd go to that, that altar, and I would spend time at that altar. And I was convinced that since the altar is taller than the mercy seat, I was convinced that the bigger I build my altar, the bigger the mercy I'll get. That's the way my brain was processing it. So I would spend hours. Hours every single day right here at this altar. God, I repent of my sins. God, I repent of all the mistakes I made. God, I repent. God, I'm so sorry. And I would spend hours right here. Then I'd finally feel like I was worthy to move to the labor of water. And the Bible says we're washed by the water of the Word. I would finally feel eligible to even read my Bible. I didn't feel like my eyes were even holy enough to look at that text. And then I would finally dust the The dirt off my shoes from all this junk I'd been doing. And then I would go in here and I would say, okay, God, give me bread. If you don't mind, please, Lord, give me some bread. Oh God, I'm so thankful you filled me with your spirit, the light of life. Then I felt like I could finally lift up my hands and worship him because I was eligible because I built an altar. And then I said, okay, God, I have attained you. This was every day for me. This was my prayer time. And one day I was flying to California. I was in the middle of a fast. Not because I was trying to appease God. This time I felt God call me on the fast. And on this fast, I didn't know what he wanted from me. I just knew he was calling me deeper. And on that plane, I was praying. I said, Lord, I love you. Lord, I'm thankful for you. Lord, I'm I'm so gracious that you're so thankful that you're allowing me to minister the gospel. Lord, you're amazing. And then at 30,000 feet, God boomed from heaven and he said, stop calling me Lord. Lord. And on that plane, I sat there just dumbfounded. And I said, well, man, that must have been me. That can't be God. And I felt the voice of God in my mind say, that was me. I said, but you are Lord. He said, I know I am. But your lifestyle is supposed to show that. Your speech is supposed to call me father. And I'll admit to you, since I was a young man up until a year ago, I've never prayed to God as the father. I was in a paradigm. I am a servant of Christ. He is the Lord. All of that's true. But I'm in a unique place that I am a son that gets to be a servant. I am a son that works on daddy's farm. I still work. He still owns the farm, but I'm something more. I am a son, not a hired hand. I get to inherit this. He's allowed me to live here. I was born into that kingdom. It's his. And he says, I'll share it with you because you're my boy. God was setting me up. I was uncomfortable. My paradigm was shifting. And so I went home and I began to pray as usual, Brother William. I was praying the tabernacle prayer. And one morning, I didn't even get past the courts. I wasn't even past that part. And the Holy Ghost stopped me and he said, I don't want you praying that today. And again, I said, oh man, it must be me. I must be being hard on myself. And I saw a vision. I saw Jesus walking through the tabernacle. I saw him climb up on that altar himself. And he laid there. And I watched centurions kill him. And then I watched him get up. And I saw out of his ribs started pouring water into that laver. And then I watched as he morphed and he turned into the bread of life. And then I watched as fire fell from heaven in Acts 2. And he became that golden candlestick. And I watched as he intercedes for mankind perpetually as he became the altar of incense. But I watched as he became the father. Father himself and went into the Holy of Holies. And he looked at me and he said these words to me. I want you to go study Hebrews. I didn't even pray that day. I went and grabbed my Bible and I kept coming across that theme over and over and over again. You've all heard it read into your hearing. I entered once for all. Once for all, once for all, once for all, once for all, once for all. If the blood of goats can make you pure, how much more so can my blood? And this is what he told me. He says, you are trying to make yourself a sacrifice so that I'm happy with you. I'm happy with my own sacrifice. I don't need you to perpetually be one. I need you to come and be with the Father. And I asked God, honestly, I said, how do I pray, though? I've been praying this way since I was 16. I'm comfortable here. This is my little side of the seesaw. This prayer is at the center of my universe. And he said, I already told you how to pray. He brought me over here, and he said, you still pray the tabernacle, son, but you pray it in reverse from now on. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name is that altar, that altar of incense where worship went forth. You start with the Father when you're a son or a daughter. Give us this day our daily bread. It's the tabernacle going the other direction. you got to understand this. When you were a sinner, this is where you started. You started at the altar right here, and you had to offer your body a living sacrifice. You had to say, I'm no longer going to be living a life of sin. I am going to repent. The word repent means to turn. I'm turning away from my will, that world that I'm living in, the ways that I used to think, that paradigm that I fell in love with, and I'm going to pledge my allegiance to Christ and Christ crucified, and so then you offer yourself a living sacrifice and you die the way He died at an altar of repentance. And then you go to the water of the labor and you are baptized, and all the blood and the stains of the past from the sacrifice that you made yourself is washed away. And then you begin to walk to the Father. But now that you're born, why would you keep living this lifestyle when you can start every prayer meeting with Daddy? Why would you come into church and have your head hanging down and say, I blew it this week. I, I, I can't even lift my hands in worship. I can't do anything right. Why don't you just come in here, and if you're going to fall, why don't you fall towards the Father? But well, here's what we do. We come to the Father, and we say, hold on. Let me repent. We turn away from the Father, and we go back to our custom. Let me go make it right. Let me go make sure he loves me. You're in relationship with the altar now, not the father. Here's what I do. I don't repent in my prayer time. You're gonna get uncomfortable. Here's what I do. I confess in my prayer time. Repentance literally means to turn away from. If you're still repenting, there's a problem. You haven't made your mind up yet. My mind's made up. I'm, I have turned from the world. I have turned from my wicked ways, and I'm going towards the Father. I haven't been perfected, so I make mistakes. So when I make a mistake, rather than return to the altar, I confess to him that I have made a mistake. I confess to the father and say, dad, I blew it. I completely, I don't spend an hour at the altar. When I wake up tomorrow, I go to him and I say, father, I'm so sorry. I messed up on doing that. And the father says, yeah, you did. What are you going to do to make it right? I'm going to establish this and I'm going to get that out of my life. That's good. That's obedience. By the way, I gave you that conviction. You didn't come up with that. That's because I was drawing you to me. This salvation is so strong. And when you get a grasp of this, you will come into church. And I think the thing that holds many of you back is you come in here and you don't lift up your hands and worship the first thing you do. You wait on music to do it because you're trying to get primed and ready. When you woke up that morning, the moment you opened your eyes this morning, the father was sitting in your bedroom, sitting across the bed from you. And when you opened your eyes, he anxiously came across. He says, I've been waiting all night to talk to you. My kids are up. I can't wait to drink coffee with you. I can't wait to open the bread of life with you. I can't wait to ride in the car with you on the way to work. What what do you wanna talk about today? You wanna talk about how bad things are? I'll listen. You wanna talk about how great the church is? I can't wait to hear it. You wanna talk about how amazing I am? Tell me. I wanna hear what I've done for you. He just wants to talk to you. And there's some, there's this fresh excitement that's come all over me that when my eyes shoot open in the morning, I say, Hey father, I'm so glad that you were waiting to talk to me all night. I can't wait to talk to you. This is why I don't reach over and grab my phone first thing in the morning because the father sat all night waiting on me to open my eyes. I want my voice to be the first thing he hears. And I've gotten to a place where I want to beat all my brothers awake because Christ is my Christmas. When I wake up, I want to be the first one before anybody else runs to him. I want to be the first one in line. Hey, Father, I'm awake before everybody else because I want to talk to you. I want to see you. I want to hear you because I'm motivated by his once for all sacrifice. I'm no longer motivated by my sacrifice. This paradigm shift will change your life. I'm going to read now for you Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places... By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that curtain which is His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast this confession of our hope. Let us not waver, but for he has promised us to us and he is faithful. Faithful. The author then tells us, how can we deny so great a salvation? This thing is amazing. The author of Hebrews then warns us. He says, how can you deny how amazing this is? How can you deny that the Father came down here as a son to show us how to be sons? And he taught us how to pray, which is you get to start with me in your prayer time, not impress me in your prayer time. You just get to wake up tomorrow and talk to me. Before you offer penance in trying to make yourself look better, you just Get to come and run to me, he says, don't deny this grade of salvation. And this is what he ends with in Hebrews 1038 He says, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. When you spend time with the Father, I'm coming to a close. When you spend time with the Father, your souls are preserved for his imminent return. But when we go back, he has no pleasure in us. He is not pleased with your perpetual sacrifices. He is pleased with his sacrifice. So then, brethren, do we no longer sacrifice? God forbid. He is going to ask things of you. He's going to ask you to stop watching some stuff. He's going to ask you to stop saying some things. He's going to ask you to treat people better than you have been. He's going to demand fruit from you. But while you're obeying, He's not loving you more because of it. Don't adopt the altar mentality or paradigm. Shift your paradigm to the father paradigm and when you do I'm telling you right now your worship's going to change. You're going to come in here as children and you're going to lift up your hands and you're going to weep and you're going to say even my own earthly father was flawed and he did things but you won't do it. Even my own earthly mother was flawed but this heavenly one isn't. The church is perfect when it's filled with people that are acting like the groom. God, I'm so thankful for this Great salvation that you've given me How far we must have gotten To no longer Love this gospel It's funny that he tells us I want you to stand right here My righteous one Shall live by faith I I feel it necessary To explain what faith is Faith is the Greek word pistis, it just means belief. The righteous are gonna believe all of this stuff that author just said. That's why he ends this sermon like this righteous ones are going to believe all of this that he entered once for all. They're not going to stay stuck in their paradigm of offering themselves as penance. There will be times when he calls you on a fast. There's going to be times when he calls you to all night prayer meetings, but it's not because he's wanting to see you perform. It's so that you get a revelation of things like this in the middle of it. But faith. The righteous ones are not the ones that have so much faith that miracles happen. That's not what faith is. That's a morsel of what faith is. True faith is those who believe in the gospel, a resurrection. That's true faith. True faith is, I believe that because of how strong this salvation and gospel is, that when I die, I will resurrect the way he did. That's a big gamble. Cuz you got to die to see if it's true. And the only way I know how to explain to you what true faith is is I was preaching a revival in Michigan. And while I was there, it was April. Snowstorm blew through. I'm talking about a foot of snow. I'm a Louisiana boy. This is winter right here for us. This is blowing my mind. I can't believe how cold it is here. So imagine I'm in Michigan and it's April and it is snowing a foot of snow. And I didn't, I didn't pack a jacket because I'm like, it's April, you know, it's not going to snow. And I get there and lo well, and behold, it's snowing. And I'm walking around and I'm like, this is insanity, okay? And you got the natives of, of Michigan, they're all walking outside and they got their short sleeves on. And I feel, I feel like a girly man. I'm like, my God, I am freezing over here and y'all are walking around in short sleeves. I can't believe this. And I had one of the natives, brother, he looked at me and he said, oh, I'm cold too. I said, why on earth are you, aren't you wearing a jacket then? And he looked at me and he said, well, because it's spring, He's like, it's April. He said, we've been doing this for too long. I'm sick of it. And he pointed, he changed my life. He pointed at a flower. He said, see that flower over there? I said, yeah, I see that flower. That one poking out of the snow? He said, yeah, that's a crocus flower. I said, I don't know what that means. He said, that's a flower that only grows in the spring. He said, that flower's convinced. It's declaring to me that spring is here. That flower don't care that it's snowing because it's a spring flower that only grows this time of year. So snow doesn't matter. It's gonna emerge through the snow every time. He said, so if that flower's telling me it's spring, I'm gonna dress like it's spring. And I looked at him and I said, so what you're telling me is that is the substance of the thing you're hoping for and the evidence of what you can't see? (laughs) He said that is precisely what it is because even though the atmosphere feels like winter, the crocus flower is my proof that it's not. (laughs) True, the righteous that live by faith is the ones who believe in a resurrected Savior even though you weren't there on the day of the resurrection and you never saw him do it but you believe that book says it is and when it preaches about a rapture you say I don't care how sinful the world is I don't care how cold it gets down here I believe in Jesus when it calls him the beautiful rose of Sharon that word rose is not rose in Hebrew it's crocus flower is what it actually is it's a flower that grows in in Israel on the mountaintops of the snow and it says that about about Jesus. He is the beautiful crocus flower of Sharon and Jesus is our crocus flower. If he resurrected I believe I'm going to. If he entered once for all for my salvation I believe I'm saved if I follow the pattern. If I am baptized in his name, filled with his spirit. If I have repented the way and died the way he did. I am convinced that I'm going to heaven. I am convinced that he wants to use me in his kingdom. I am convinced that if he used T.W. Barnes, he's going to use me. I'm convinced that if he uses Brother Williams in authority He's going to use me in authority I'm convinced that if he gives revelation to Chester Wright He's going to give me revelation Why? Because they're my brothers Daddy You did it for my brother And you're no respecter of persons Do it for me I will, because you have my spirit in you. Are you convinced of this salvation, or are you still thinking thou art a hard man? And I'm not gonna, re- I'm not gonna replicate. I'm not gonna multiply because I knew that that was a hard man. He's gonna look at you and say, "How could you deny so great a salvation?" I entered once for all. I think it appropriate right now, without any emotional turmoil or me pulling and tugging. I think it would be appropriate for your response to just simply be, "Oh." God, I am so thankful that you did that for me. I think that the word should be enough tonight to pull out of you such gratitude and such worship that preaching, I'm not here to rile up your emotions. I'm not here to do any of that. The blood of Jesus that was preached to us in the gospels and confirmed to us in Hebrews should be more than enough to get us to a place of, oh my God, I am on a sure foundation I am in a steadfast place no matter what I've done in the past God you will redeem it God no matter what mistake I made if I am if I will confess myself your word says that you are faithful to forgive us our sins would you just confess to him right now would you just let him know father this is what I've done this is where I've been this is who I did it with this is what I looked at this is what I touched and he is faithful and He is just to forgive us all our sins. He is still sitting at the throne making intercession for you right now. Would you just invest all of your life into Him? Would you just go ahead and just pour everything out right now? Don't try to offer yourself up right now. Just go to the Father. Would you imagine yourself wrapping your arms around him and would you see him pouring his love on you? Would you see him pouring his grace on you? Would you see him embracing you and say I just want you home with me. I just want you in my arms. If you're a prodigal and you've been struggling I want you to know that the Father's standing on the porch right now bidding you come. If you're watching online and you didn't feel like you could even come to a church service tonight, the father's in your living room right now tugging on you. If you're listening on a podcast and you're hearing this, I want you to know that if you're in your car, the father is wrapping his arms around you and calling you home. Come on, that's it. That is the appropriate response of sons and daughters. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for this amazing grace. Thank you for such a great salvation. I will not deny it. I'll put all my faith in the resurrected Savior. Oh, anda la baria labaco sotto